The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Joe Carlin. Uh, He is a uh, business analyst. He also has written a book called The Einstein of Money, The Life and Timeless Financial Wisdom of Benjamin Graham. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Let's just start with your background a little bit and uh, what you do in your business and why you wanted to write a book about Benjamin Graham. There have been a lot of books written about him, but why did you want to uh, do this one as well? Sure. So uh, my background is in uh, uh, market assessment and business consulting. I have a, an MBA and a, a technology uh, degree. But uh, I've read Graham's uh, investment books, uh, Intelligent Investor and uh, uh, Security Analysis. But it was when I read his, I came across a uh, copy of his uh, post uh, humorously pop, uh, published memoirs that are actually out of print. There's a copy here in the library in, in San Diego. And, and when I came across those memoirs, I realized that he was much more than just a, a great thinker on investment finance. And he really intrigued me as just a, a very, very uh, distinct, uh, very accomplished uh, intellectual on, on, on many fronts. Uh, and then I realized that the only biography that had been been written about him uh, so far was written in '94, whereas his uh, memoirs were released in '96. So, and, and because there's, there's such a rich resource there, both on the both with regards to his uh, investment work and his other aspects of his life, that it seemed to me like there's an excellent opportunity to write a uh, new biography with. Uh, with reference to his memoirs. Very good. Before we get into the uh, whole book about Graham, just tell us a little bit about, more about the comprehensive market assessment work that you do, because it does fit into what Graham was, was talking about. Yeah, uh, what I do is mainly for, well, there's two, I, I do market assessments and I do business valuation, uh, business valuation of private uh, companies, or close what they call closely held companies, uh, and that kind of ties in with Graham in the sense that Graham would look at public companies as if they were private, and he would do a value, sort of do a valuation on them, uh, and sort of ignore the ticker price, uh, and come up with his own valuation, looking at the fundamentals like the earnings and the balance sheet and so forth, so forth. And then he would see if the market price was significantly above or below that, and then make his investment decision based on on that analysis, that process. So in that sense, it is actually related to Graham's work. And the market assessment is for uh, companies that have a new product or they have an existing product line. They're looking at uh, penetrating new markets. Uh, so that is um, work that I do for companies here and also some companies in Asia. And tell people about your website and how to find you if they want to uh, follow up further about this. Sure. 
So my website is knowthymarket.com. That's K-N-O-W-T-H-Y market.com. Very good. Okay, well, let's get to the beginning of our Let's kind of look at an overall view of uh, Graham's impact on the markets. I mean, he was around in the 20s and the 30s. He, he worked uh, at Columbia in the, in the 50s. Um, people know Warren Buffett as his biggest disciple, but in a, before we get into all the details, can I give us a bigger picture of what the impact is of Benjamin Graham's writings and thoughts and t- teachings on the way people uh, value and analyze stocks today? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, a very large number of uh, f- very significant funds, not just here in the States, but uh, even in Japan and Europe, that uh, are applying his methods. And uh, essentially, he was, before his, his, his work was published, the, the, uh, pretty much the only view, there probably were a few others who, who, who bucked the trend that we don't know of, but generally speaking, people are looking at the charts, and they're saying, okay, this uh, looks like the momentum's heading in this direction or that direction, and they were, that was their angle on the market. And Graham was the first to, at least to, to publish, uh, a new paradigm on looking at fundamentals first and then uh, looking at the price. And even, I mean, Graham's essential, his, his core insight is that if you know, so you do your analysis of the company, the fundamentals, and if your analysis indicates that the per share value is considerably higher than the current market price, then you're purchasing with 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 what's called a margin of safety. And uh, he didn't pretend to know when the market would correct itself and see its mistake, but he did see that the market did correct itself and say, wow, you know, we really overreacted to this bad news and by slashing the, the price by, you know, by half, even though all the fundamentals are still good. Uh, so, you know, but eventually the market does correct itself and realize its its mistakes and the what he called the intelligent investor could take advantage of the market's emotional reactions, overreactions to, to both good news and bad news. So today, particularly, where you see all of this high-frequency trading and dramatic day-to-day volatility, uh, this seems a bit antiquated to think of these long-term values and ultimately it'll all win out. How does what Graham's talking about apply particularly to today where there's this massive movement of money by hedge funds on literally a millisecond basis, moving huge amounts of money and indexes and so on. Yeah. Well, I think it, I think it still applies, especially to, I, I mean, certainly there's some professional uh, traders with uh, certain kinds of, of software and whatnot that have found ways of making a lot of money using uh, high-frequency trading. But uh, overall, they've done studies on day trading, and for, for all but a small minority, it's a money loser especially for non-professional uh, investors. So for people that are kind of uh, they're not spending all day you know, with five screens in front of them investing, that kind of style of investing usually does not work well. So the, uh, you know, but certainly there are exceptions, and there's no question that there are people who, who are practicing uh, high-frequency trading and, and similar approaches that are successful. But I think that Graham's method and the value investing method is, over the long term, 
for especially for the lay investor is uh, is is less risky and more likely to generate a positive return. So you think the average person who's not an expert in investing could read your big book, uh, learn the fundamentals of Graham's approach, apply that to stocks today, and do very well for themselves in the long run without being experts or spending a lot of time out, is what you're saying. Well, I think that it's a method through which they can they can certainly help avoid losses and over the long term, yeah, over the long term do do quite well. I mean, the over the the long term value versus growth studies, for example, uh, there's uh, O'Shaughnessy and Malkiel and several noted investment um, analysts have done long term studies of using like value fa- uh, filters and and rules versus um, uh, growth selection criteria, and all those studies over the long term uh, favor value. And certainly, many of these methods are not—they're not that difficult to apply, especially nowadays, because you can look at um, all the screens that he had uh, listed in the Intelligent Investor. They're much easier to apply now with all the information online. So I think that um, you know, it still obviously it still requires work, and you still need to put some thought into it. But I think it's certainly less risky because. What Graham was proposing and what, what Buffett practices, and it, it's really a system of investment, of finding good value. And that's, that's sort of the antithesis of uh, speculation. And some of these other sort of quicker methods are more, I think, are, are definitely more speculative. And there's, uh, I think, much higher risk of losing one's principal. I guess the other side of uh, Graham's point of view is the uh, kind of random walk feeling that or efficient market feeling that uh, the current market price of a stock reflects all known information about it and the average investor has no chance whatsoever of beating it so you should just buy an index what, what would graham if you're around today respond to that well it's actually it's that's a very interesting point because towards the end of his life he actually was sort of leaning more towards that camp and he actually said that um instead of spending so much time selecting specific stocks, you can apply the filters uh, and just sort of pick a basket according to those filters, and over time the results won't be that different from picking individual stocks. But but what's interesting, uh, and there was actually a whole piece he published in, in a journal called Medical Economics, actually the year, just a few months before he passed, passed on in 1976, that was all about that. But what's interesting is that, um, you know, his his disciples, so to speak, they still, I'm sure most of them are aware of, of that article, but they still practice a form of his earlier approach of really stock-by-stock analysis. Yeah. All right, well, I want to go into uh, the beginning of your book. You have what you call the margin of safety chapter. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we talked about it a little bit, but define again, what that what he meant by the margin of safety and how people can find a margin of safety when they're buying an individual stock. Sure. So what he meant by that is that you have is that there's a distinction between price and value. Uh, and that is that the the market price that we, we often assume that the market price is you know the value. But in many cases 
for a variety of reasons, the price kind of gets un, uh, untethered from the the intrinsic value. And what is the intrinsic value? The intrinsic value is uh, relates to the earnings and relates to the capital structure, the level of debt. So really, the, the fundamentals of the company's performance and of its capital structure. And I think I think an excellent example of this is. Um, to illustrate this, is in 2008, the financial crisis hit, and uh, Harley Davidson issued a uh, their their quarterly earnings report was um, a bit disappointing. They were still profitable, still a very solid company, but the market just completely overreacted. You know, because everything was in panic, and they had a disappointing uh, earnings report, and their stock price was slashed by uh, over 60 percent. Went from like 32 or 34 down to to 12. Uh, but the fundamentals were still strong, and uh, Buffett recognized that, and he came in and he bought a massive chunk of Harley-Davidson at $12. And then when the stock sunk further to $8, there, actually, there was actually some, some people in the press who ridiculed him for buying it at, at 12 and it went down to 8 But he knew that when he bought it at 12 that um, he was buying at a very large margin of safety. Yeah. Because the fundamentals were still really, in, you know, in the 30s or whatnot, and of course, not long after, it went back up to uh, to the 30s. So he, that is, a, a, I think, a very good uh, example of of uh, margin of safety because the price sunk so far below the, so essentially, the price line fell way below the value line. And uh, there was a huge margin of safety opportunity. So it's a different way of looking at it, as opposed to just saying, "Wow, you know, the uh, look at how they look at the chart. Look at how Harley Davidson is sinking." If you look at it like that, you think, "Wow, I better sell." Yeah. Right. But if you look at it with this paradigm of the margin of safety, it's a, it's a different way of looking at it. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this week is Joe Carlin. Uh, he's written a new book called "The Einstein of Money." Life and Timeless Financial Wisdom of Benjamin Graham. There is a website related to the book, which is EinsteinOfMoney.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. 
On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Joe Carlin. Uh, he's written a book called The Einstein of Money. It's all about Benjamin Graham. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Thank you. So we were talking about the margin of safety, where you're buying a stock uh, that's way below its market value, and therefore it can't fall much further, but you get back to its market value originally. Um, one of the methods that uh, Graham talked about is the discounted cash flow method. So maybe briefly describe how that works and how that helps you value a stock that has a big margin of safety. Sure. So uh, that method looks at, uh, there's also a, a variant of that method called the, the free cash flow method, uh, but you're essentially looking at uh, earnings going forward, and you're making a, an informed estimate based on past performance of what the future earnings of the company are likely to be, and you apply what's called a discount factor, which has to do with uh, uh, inflation, and uh, essentially you're, you're you're measuring the time you're measuring the time value of money, obviously, because a dollar five years from now is less value than a dollar today. And through that method, you can actually arrive at a uh, sort of a, a rough estimate of the company's per share value. Uh, based on its uh, earnings power, and there's some—I mean—some people apply different, some variants of that. Some people like using what's called free cash flow, which is sort of a more stringent um, form of of earnings, and and there's some variants on that. But essentially, you're you're looking at the earnings power of the company, and you're you're making a going forward, and you're 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 discounting those. All future cash flows to arrive at a uh, an enterprise value, and then you're d- dividing. You're looking at the per share value. So through that method, if you decide that if you arrive at let's say the per share value of the entity is you know sixty three dollars, and it's currently being uh, sold, the current market price is you know, uh, forty dollars, then it's uh, it's likely you have a strong margin of safety. So how can the average individual? do a discounted cash flow analysis, they have to project out earnings for the next five years, or there's interest rates are part of it. What, what are the elements if somebody wants to do a discounted cash flow analysis on a stock today? Well, they would have to first look at the, uh, they would have to look at recent earnings, uh, and then they would have to arrive at a, uh, at a discount rate, and there are several factors involved with that. And then they would have to uh, apply the discount rate to what they believe the future. I mean, what what an analysis 
of the historical earnings suggest the earnings are likely to be. So it's really a case-by-case uh, scenario. And also you have to look at, in some cases, you know, if you have, uh, let's say you have a company that's in the, 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 the PC market uh, and there's a risk of obsolescence. And I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, I mean, the core of it is, is you have your discount rate and you have your earnings. But there's also lots of nuance depending on what the company, the line of business the company is in. It sounds kind of complicated for the average person to do. Are there places that do it for them, or are there mutual funds that use this technique, or are there databases or websites to go to? What would be an easier way for people to apply this? Well, there are, there's all kinds of online resources that provide kind of rough estimates of um, discount cash flow. So, for example, whether it's a large company or a small company, a mid-sized company, they provide different uh, discount rates. So if you just you know, go Google uh, discount rates, uh, and you can get rough guidelines for that. But um, in the book, there's a pretty good worked example of Merck uh, and how that was arrived at uh, and then comparing to the market price. So it gives, it gives a pretty good idea of how to look at the financial data, uh, how to arrive at uh, a reasonable discount rate, and then how to apply that and arrive at a per share value. So that's, that's actually one of the appendices of the book. Uh, you, uh, Buff, uh, uh, Graham also applied this margin of safety idea to bonds. Maybe briefly describe how the margin of safety can be applied when you're, when you're buying bonds as well. So with bonds, his primary concern was uh, what was how much were, were the uh, the debt or called the total fixed charges? How much were they covered by the earnings? So, in what uh, say for, for example, he had certain rules that depending on the industry, you had to have a minimum coverage of uh, earnings to fixed charges. So in other words, the the debt that was that uh, is held by the the bond has to be covered by its issuing company's earnings a certain minimum number of times. So that implies that there's a there's reasonable uh, there's enough safety of earnings to provide for all the the debt payments. Okay, uh, you also have a chapter what you call numbers don't usually lie. And this was one of Graham's big ideas that numbers don't lie. He, he was more interested in just quantitative analysis of the companies and not really meeting with management or assessing the product future potential, that kind of thing. What did he mean when he said numbers don't lie and, and, and how he applied that to analyzing stocks? Well, he, he was actually a mathematics major at uh, Columbia, so his natural inclination is really more to look at the numbers as opposed to uh, you know the hype around a, a new product and its potential promise or whatnot, uh, and so he and he also believed that the meeting with the management and and those kinds of those intangible factors he he actually believed that was already reflected in the operating date uh, in the performance data, right? That a strong management and um, and a good brand and all that uh, would you know. Would all be reflected in the 
in the, in the performance of the company. So why why evaluate that twice? Now, of course, there's some very successful people who disagree with him on that, and probably Charlie Munger, um, Warren Buffett's uh, right hand man, would probably be a good example of that because uh, for Munger, really looks more at the he really considers uh, the brand, how strong the brand is, and he's willing to pay a premium for a strong brand. So and management, that, too. They're very big at evaluating management. Right. That's true. So they're, they're, they, uh, they evaluate those factors, I think, more. Uh, they, they give more weight to those factors than Graham did. But certainly, um, but essentially, they're still practicing the form of Graham's uh, approach. But I think that... Uh, it, it's hard to, to understate the importance of what Graham, uh, Graham did by focusing on numbers as opposed to all, because especially, you know, in the 20s and then again in the, the 60s with the electronics uh, bubble, which was remarkably sim- similar to the, what happened to the dot-com uh, in the 90s, uh, there was just so much, high, so much of the, the, uh, the price movements of, of gr- especially growth stocks was just driven by hype. But look at this, you know, new new uh, gadget this company has, and it's going to take over the world, and and just the hype about a new industry or new product. And for him, he was like, okay, what's the performance? You know, where are the earnings? How much debt does this company have? And by by looking at things that way, he avoided a lot of uh, very dangerous uh, investments. But you'd miss stocks that have no earnings yet, but have huge. I mean. Google, when it first came out, didn't have earnings or something. It was going to be a huge winner. Or, uh, Twitter now or something like that. I mean, companies that have huge and a lot of hype related to them uh, might not have earnings for a while because they're growing their business. What would Graham do with something like that? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's a fair point. And, and actually, in the there were some people who worked for him in the fifties uh, who were a little frustrated because they thought that he missed out on some good opportunities. Uh, uh, some good uh, growth opportunities. However, I, actually, I think I think Graham would probably be looking at shorting some some of the extremely high valuation uh, stocks. Uh, possibly something like Twitter. He might be looking at it more of a, as a shorting opportunity. But uh, but I think that overall, though, his certainly certainly you miss some blockbusters with Graham's approach. But for every one of those blockbusters, there's, uh, as was demonstrated in the in the dot com era, uh, for every one of those blockbusters, there's uh, you know forty or fifty uh, duds, and that's what what Graham what Graham's approach really filters out. So I think that I mean, for example, but he he did I mean he invested in Geico before no one ever knew what Geico was because he saw that. He saw how the the business was structured. He saw the regular cash flow from the premium, and they had low risk. At that point, it was just government employees who who were in Geico and low risk uh, um, policyholders and so forth. And he saw the potential for that. And he he his company bought a huge stake in that uh, in 1949. And then later, of course, Buffett got in on that. And now Buffett owns Geico. Uh, so he he did. It's not like he missed out. I mean, he he did uh, ride the wave of some pretty phenomenal growth stories, but it was always had to be growth that was grounded in in kind of a long term sustainable business model. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, you, you talk about uh, screens for both a defensive and the aggressive uh, investor. Mm-hmm. Just briefly go through the defensive screen uh, that he had in, in uh, saying the numbers don't lie, uh, what people should look for if they're wanting to invest but want to be quite conservative and defensive. Okay. So for, he says that, first of all, uh, you shouldn't look at companies with um, less than around half a billion in annual sales. Uh, and, and some people say that you can actually adjust that. You can adjust that um, higher if you wish. Uh, then he also said that the financial condition has to be um, of a certain uh, that the the current assets have to be double the the uh, current liabilities. Okay. Actually, you know, we're going to take a break. I'm going to come back. We're going to go through this screen more because I want to get this in detail. So sure. we're going to take a break right now. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Joe Carlin. Uh, he runs a company called Know Thy Market. Uh, he is a, also the author of a book called The Einstein of Money, The Life and Timeless Financial Wisdom of Benjamin Graham. There is a website related to that, which is einsteinofmoney.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Joe Carlin. Uh, he's done a book called The Einstein of Money, The Life and Timeless Financial Wisdom of Benjamin Graham. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Thank you. 
We were talking about the screens for defensive investors. The first two things to look at were the size of the company, be basically at least uh, 500 million in sales or more, uh, that they'd be in good financial condition. What are some of the other things people should look for in a defensive screen in looking at companies? There, should, there also should be stability of earnings, so positive earnings in each of the past uh, 10 years. So, in other words, no, no losses for the past 10 years, at least the past 10 years. Consistent record of uh, uninterrupted dividend payments over the past uh, 20 years. Now, this is something you probably should be some flexibility about because um, the last edition of this book was 1973, and there's dividends, uh, there's fewer companies that pay dividends now, but... Uh, earnings growth uh, per share earnings should have increased by at least one third, so consistent uh, large earnings growth. Moderate, moderate ratio of price to assets, so um, that is also uh, important because it's a measure of you know how inflated the price is. Is assets book value basically what people should look for? Yeah, net book value. Okay. So tangible note and tangible asset. Okay, moderate ratio of price to earnings. And uh, he believed it shouldn't exceed uh, 15. Would, would that still apply today, you think, a P-E ratio of 15 or less? Well, yeah, I mean, there are, there are some, there are some uh, opportunities, but it's actually interesting. When you apply all of these, and uh, I apply these on a, on a regular basis, uh, sometimes there are very, very few companies that, that meet this mark. But, uh, but there are quite a few that meet almost all of them and that are, quite close to meeting all of them, and certainly uh, they are fairly safe companies, generally speaking. What would be the name of one or two of them today that would meet these most of these uh, defensive screens? Uh, well, the last time I applied it was about uh, two weeks ago, so I don't know if I... It's okay. These are long-term plays for the most part. Yeah. Um... Going to pull up my because it would be interesting for people to see how these relate to today uh, because these are quite conservative numbers here. Yeah, are these things, by the way, at your uh, website? Knowthemarket.com? Do you put put out some material on stocks that meet the Graham criteria? I uh, I don't, but there's uh, I have um, on my file here. Here's. There's a company in China, the Guangshan Railway Company, um, Reliance Steel and Aluminum, uh, and these meet almost almost all the defensive uh, methods. Actually, uh, Mosaic, which the is fertilizer the, company, mm-hmm. yeah, that actually meets all of them at the moment. Example. Uh-huh. So. Okay. That gives him some idea. And then he, the other side was what he calls the enterprising investor. Yeah. So uh, similar kinds of things, but what is the difference between the screen for the enterprising investor versus the defensive one? Yeah, so they're very similar. It just it, it sort of loosens the, uh, it loosens the conditions. So uh, instead of, for example, in financial conditions, instead of the current assets, being at least twice the value of the current liabilities, it's uh, at least one point five times. I so see. it's essentially the same, the same sorts of uh, filters, but just uh, just relaxed somewhat to allow for a broader range of companies. 
Now, another thing that Graham got very much involved in kind of really started the whole movement of what's called shareholder activism today, where mm-hmm. shareholders, both big and small, become involved with the company and want things to be changed around and realize the value in the company. Just tell us briefly about what Graham did uh, in shareholder activism and how that's seen today based on what he kind of started. Sure. So he, uh, there was, uh, Standard Oil was, was broken up into several, uh, Standard Oil is uh, Rockefeller's big conglomerate, and uh, it was broken up in uh, 1911 into three, four companies. So uh, in 1926, uh, Graham was was uh, active on Wall Street, and there was a uh, one of those companies called Northern Pipeline, and he his firm was Graham's firm was a major investor in that, and. Uh, Make a long story short, he 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 got ac- he he got access to additional information about the company that wasn't on their uh, he, their what they were sending out to investors. He actually went to D.C. to find out more information, and he finds out that there's all this hidden uh, all these hidden assets on the books, and uh, that uh, Northern Pipeline had ninety five dollars per share in railroad bonds and other liquid assets. Uh, while the stock was trading at only $65 per share. And, of course, when he brought that up to the uh, management, they, they were extremely reluctant to uh, discuss it, let alone dispense any of those funds to the, release any of those funds to the shareholders, which, as Graham pointed out, are the rightful owners. So through he was persistent, and he got other investor, uh, shareholders on board. Most notably, he, he got... Uh, John D. Rockefeller himself on board with pressuring the management of Northern Pipeline to release uh, those assets to the uh, shareholders, and he was uh, successful in that. They distributed $70 per share of excess liquid assets. And what's really interesting, though, about that is that John D. Rockefeller followed Graham's example and then pressured a number of other former Standard Oil companies, because John D. Rockefeller was the biggest shareholder in all these companies, and he was really, he couldn't believe that the management was doing this, was hiding all the, these assets from the, the shareholders. And Johnny Rockefeller went out and, and forced a number of other uh, Standard Oil affiliates to to uh, release huge amounts of money to the shareholders, Which and then Rockefeller used that for all his uh, philanthropic uh, activities. I see. So, so since he was a big shareholder, he benefited by unlocking that value, I guess. Yeah, so and, how- and it's going to kind of set the example for, it was like a, a, a case study in... Uh, in effective shareholder activism, and uh, it, it actually got quite a lot of press. That that uh, was called the Northern Pipeline Affair at the time, and that really distinguished Graham. And of course, there are people these days who are effective uh, shareholder activists, uh, you know, like David Einhorn and Carl Icahn, who are sort of following similar strategies. So, how would an investor take advantage of that, uh, seeing? A, a company that's uh, undervaluing its assets and hoping an activist comes in there. How how can an average investor kind of take advantage of this whole shareholder activism today? Well, I think that uh, I mean obviously the investor would have to do do his or her homework or or learn that there's a larger shareholder who is uh, taking action, but. Uh, certainly, if there's a scenario where the company is, uh, the management is is hoarding, uh, keeping assets from the rightful owners, then uh, there are remedies 
through in conjunction with you know if it's if it's an investor who might have to network with other investors to to put pressure enough pressure on management, but it uh, it does work. Yeah. Okay. You have a whole chapter in the book about what you call the folly of Mister Market, and uh, certainly Warren Buffett talks about this as well. Kind of get the the concept across that Graham was talking about Mister Market and, and what sh- one should do to listen or not to listen to Mister Market. Sure. So uh, Graham employed this this parable of Mister Market. So a bipolar individual who gets uh, overall too, you know, gets completely despondent with a little bit of bad news and just over-the-top ecstatic with a little bit of good news. And, uh, and he, he likened that to, to how the, you know, the, the market often behaves like that. Uh, and the, what he calls the intelligent investor can take advantage of that. Uh, and, of course, I think what Buffett did with Harley-Davidson is, is the classic example of that. So when the, you can see that if the market is, is reacting based on emotion, uh, as opposed to based on a real significant change in fundamentals, uh, then you can react. Then you can take advantage of that and buy in at a low. Uh, it's it's just like how you know Buffett says of uh, I'm I'm greedy when others are fearful and I'm fearful when others are greedy. It's just the uh, the fact that often the the market is. Um, is moving according to uh, emotion, but eventually, the whole point of that is that eventually the market cor- does correct its its uh, mistake, and that's when the intelligent investor is rewarded for for being a contrarian and for buying in when everyone is selling off or vice versa. So you're saying that people should be a contrarian, but you're also saying it's futile to be a market timer. And Bogle of Vanguard said the same thing. Is that saying the same thing that you shouldn't do market timing, but you still can? Right, because the idea is that it's like it's like when uh, when Buffett bought uh, Harley Davidson at twelve dollars and came down from thirty three or whatever. That he he didn't claim to know that twelve dollars was the the floor, and in fact it wasn't. It went down further, but he did know that the market was rea- was acting extremely irrationally with respect to the stock price of Harley Davidson. And that sooner or later, that mistake would be corrected as people realized that uh, Harley Davidson was not going anywhere, still profitable, and it was insane to cut the price by over sixty percent. Uh, so he doesn't claim to know. Value investors don't claim to know exactly when uh, these overreactions are um, are corrected, but uh, they believe that you know, and, t- and history shows that they generally are corrected. And when they are, you can you can stand to, to profit from that. But you definitely have to have um, patience as a value investor because these things can stay undervalued for quite a while and you don't know when or exactly why it's going to get back to its full value, right? That's right. And, and then another, another issue with that is what's called value traps where, uh, where a company is, you have to be very careful to make sure that the company is, that, that the stock price is plummeting uh, due to irrational reasons and not to a uh, mix of Irrational and rational reasons, because then you're really you think you're buying a value stock, but in fact you're just buying a uh, you know it's like buying a typewriter stock in the in the late 1980s or something, right? Whether in fact there's a, another more logical reason why the stock price is plummeting. Yes, indeed. Okay. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Joe Carlin. Uh, he's the author of The Einstein of Money. 
uh, The Life and Timeless Financial Wisdom of Benjamin Graham. There is a website related to the book, which is Einstein of Money. Uh, he also does a uh, market assessment business, and his website there is knowthymarket.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Are you looking for innovative ideas on how to achieve your financial dreams? Tune in to Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday afternoon at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Join certified financial planners Ken Smith and Ethan Broga to learn how you can obtain financial success. You'll be entertained while you discover techniques to alleviate your financial concerns. Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Hi, I'm Joe Swedish, CEO of WellPoint. We proudly support the March of Dimes and all they do to reduce the rate of premature birth in the United States. Though premature births have recently declined, still half a million babies are born too soon each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs that help moms and their babies live healthier lives. Please visit MarchofDimes.com and join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Joe Carlin. Uh, He has written a book called The Einstein of Money about Benjamin Graham. He also has a market assessment business. His website there is knowthymarket.com. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Thank you. So now I'd like to talk about some of the most famous students of Graham and how they are applying his principles today, Uh, the most famous of which, of course, is Warren Buffett. So what did Warren Buffett learn from Graham that he's applying has made him so successful in Berkshire Hathaway for all these years? Yeah, what he learned from Graham is that that, uh, he believes that the core insight that he obtained from Graham is the margin of safety. And the importance of doing an independent analysis of the company and not uh, not accepting the market price at face value. And for him, uh, but he was 19 when he read The Intelligent Investor, Graham's uh, classic, uh, most famous work. And he, by then he had already read dozens of, uh, if not hundreds, of investment books. He'd been reading investment books since he was eight. And he said that it was really the first book that really made clear the intelligent investor was the first book that really made clear sense to him from from start to finish and uh and he said that he still he still applies it and uh and that's still his his core uh that still lies at the core of his approach and he's the most successful investor in recorded history and he actually once described himself as 85% Graham and 15% um Phil Fisher um 
And so I think that uh, that's, that's the, the, I think the core insight is really the margin of safety for him. Uh-huh. So there are some other uh, kind of famous, as you call them, disciples of value. Let's just kind of go over some of them briefly and what they've, they've done. Uh, you've got uh, William Ruane of the Sequoia Fund. What, what did he do with what he learned from Graham? Well, he was also a uh, student there at uh, Columbia, just like uh, Buffett was at Graham's class. And he, um, his returns are uh, quite impressive. He has a, for his time, he, was, he had a compound return of 17.2% versus S&P's uh, 10%. Uh, so he he also did extremely well with uh, applying Graham's approach, and he didn't he I, I don't believe he modified it to the, to the uh, I think he 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 applied a fairly classic uh, Graham approach. Are those still available? The Sequoia Fund is still available today for people who'd want to do it. It's um, there there are uh, forty one year yeah there's they their management has changed somewhat. Uh, and its performance uh, in recent decades is a little different, but yeah, it's still it's still uh, operating. I see. Okay. Now another person was uh, Walter and Edwin Schloss Associates. So tell us about them. Yeah. So actually, Mr. Schloss uh, just passed away uh, since this book was published. But they had they their approach was very interesting because they applied a Graham approach. But unlike Buffett, they would pick many stocks, whereas Buffett liked to pick relatively few. Uh, but they um, they did very well. They had a an, from they had a compound return from 1956 to 1984 of 21.3 percent versus um, uh, 8.4 percent for the S and P during that time. So they've done extremely well with that. And what's interesting about that is Schloss and Buffett were uh, were close friends, and they, but they never agreed on the fact on this, you know, how the number of stocks. But Buffett said, you know, clearly he's my friend is still doing very well using his own approach. But at the core, they were still applying Graham's approach just in slightly different ways. And then you have Charlie uh, Munger, who works with Buffett all the time. Uh, how is that? Uh, how did that partnership kind of form? And they're both Graham disciples, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Munger definitely cites Graham as an important uh, influence. Munger is a little bit, bit more on the Phil Fisher school of uh, kind of looking for for really solid, uh, large brands, and, and it's it's a slightly. But he kind of marries that with the Graham approach, and I think he's uh, so he, he's a little bit more in the Phil Fisher camp. But the Phil Fisher and Graham don't necessarily disagree. It's just the emphasis is a little bit different. Uh, but uh, but yeah, even before Munger was part of the Berkshire team, he did extremely well. He had a compound return of almost twenty percent versus um, an S and P yield of six point six five percent. And then you talk about other super investors today beyond the ones we've just mentioned. So, so are, are all of these people bringing Graham's uh, ideas into today's market and adding additional value and insights? Yeah, I mean, some of them are, are doing some very interesting things. There's um, the one in particular who uh, really I think is very impressive, uh, Mark Russo, and he's applying Graham's methods to the developing markets, most notably Sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, he he's looking at there's some large European consumer brands like Nestle, 
Swiss company that are making huge inroads into sub-Saharan Africa, and these are countries now where the standard of living is is, is rising very rapidly because there's new manufacturing jobs and whatnot. So he's he's capitalizing on this growth, but in a very conservative way, uh, and he's kind of looking. He's he's applying the Graham paradigm to the you know to the global. Uh, investment uh, arena. So I think that there's people who are doing some really very interesting things with uh, Graham's approaches, and there's some very large funds in Japan and Europe and, and India that are um, essentially value shops that are at, at their core applying Graham's uh, approach. One of your final chapters in the book is what you call the ethics of money. Uh, what were some of Graham's uh, views on ethically investing and, and uh, trading ethically? Graham really saw himself as a steward of his um, his clients' money, and it was interesting because uh, I, I was fortunate to, to interview uh, pretty much everyone who who, who worked with uh, Graham and who who was important in his life. And uh, I think that for for both Buffett and for his daughter, who actually passed away uh, recently, the fact that, that Graham's ethics and and his uh, the way he treated the client, like for example, in the depression, of course, uh, his fund did take a hit, but he he made sure that every investor got every dime back that they lost uh, from that crash because he felt he kind of felt responsible, even though of course he you know it was sort of beyond his control. And uh, and his his daughter Marjorie said, you know, that was the thing that impressed me the most about my father because there there are very few people on Wall Street who who did that. Uh, so he he really was um, he really saw himself as a steward of of his clients' money, and also he was just he was just a very good guy. I mean, it, at, in that respect, uh, he was quite generous uh, to his employees, and uh, and Buffett in particular was was very touched by his generosity. Uh, Buffett worked for him for 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 two years, and uh, and it, so he was he was really a uh, he was a. I think he was unusual in many ways uh, because he he was he was very he was extremely ethical almost to uh, to a uh, perfectionist degree, and he he was really enthralled mostly by the intellectual aspect of investing. I mean, he wanted to make money and he wanted to, to attain financial security, but beyond that, he was just really fascinated by by a sort of an intellectual. Uh, uh, arena. In about a minute we have left, Joe, just kind of sum up briefly what people can learn uh, from your book and from studying Graham and be- how to become better investors today. Well, I think that they can uh, they can learn the importance of this paradigm and also I think that this book there are there are ways of uh, there are some shortcuts of applying for example discount cash flow method you can you can look through the uh, read through the example here and the methods in the book, and also there are things like online. There's online net present value calculators, so you could apply the concepts, and then uh, using some of these online resources, you can do the calculations uh, pretty easily. Uh, and I think that there's, uh, and even if you you know if you don't want to do that, you just want to go with a fund. 
this will, understanding this approach will help you, I think, select, will help someone select a fund that's uh, appropriate for them. So I, th- I just think that understanding this approach and the fact that it's, it's an approach that was presented 70 years ago and is still being applied by the most successful investors today, I don't think that can be said for many other approaches. Indeed, you're right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, my guest this hour has been Joe Carlin. Uh, he's the uh, author of a book called The Einstein of Money, The Life and Timeless Financial Wisdom of Benjamin Graham. Uh, there is a website related to the book, which is EinsteinofMoney.com. He also runs a comprehensive market assessment firm, and his website for that is KnowThyMarket.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Joe. Thank you. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The greater your success. If you're a business owner...